I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in wondering why. Live from the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. No, we've changed. It's where, Christ, it's where religious nuts meet Christian fruits face-to-face. -face. And I'm still your host, Sean McCraney. I want to open up tonight by visiting a concept I uh, shared with you about being a Christian a while back. What's the biblical model? Now, look it, we have the Bible, the New Testament. What's the biblical model of being a Christian? Well, first we have to ask, where, who do we look to to discover the biblical model? And of course, that would be Jesus, the Son of Man. And then we might also say, well, his 12 apostles. We look at their lives and, and what they did and how they lived and what they addressed and Jesus' life and what he did and what he said and what he addressed as the biblical model. And how does the biblical narrative describe the life of Jesus, the life of his chosen 12? God could have, think about this for a second, he could have created any sort of existence for his only begotten son, anything at all. The author and finisher of our, of our, uh, finisher of our faith, he could have come in whatever way God wanted. He could have come from royalty like Prince William and baby George. He could have been six foot seven, tall, dark, and handsome, 240, Adonis Pex, handsome. He could have been given the best education, the best schools, finest upbringing, all the luxuries, fame, power, might, a beautiful wife, a, a bevy full of children, and a mansion, and on and on and on, couldn't he? I mean, God got to, to do whatever he wanted in, in the setting up of his only begotten son. But the author and finisher of our faith started his life lowly, and it kept going on down from there. Do, do we ever remember that or realize that? When I was LDS, I used to sit at steak dances because I was on the steak high council and I would chaperone them. And I would sit out in the lobby and I'd scratch my head while ACDC was playing. And then shortly thereafter, they would pray that the spirit would be there. And, and I would sit there and scratch my head and say, what is the disconnect that, that's going on right here? I don't get what we do and then what I read about in the Bible. I don't get it when it comes to Christianity, to tell you the truth. Jesus' life did not increase except in spiritual stature. It decreased in terms of his physical comforts and, uh, and social and, and material stature. Um, this is the insufferable model the Bible presents to Christians. We cannot get around it. It's a decline and a death of the self and the flesh not an increase. And so all you have to do, and this is where I go back to a board illustration we did uh, a couple of months ago, and where we used baby Mormo, and we showed how the LDS, what they want their children to start off like and go and grow up to be versus God's son. And so what do we have with God's son? Well, first of all, he was born in a manger, and that's an animal stall. And, and he, his father was a carpenter, and he had nothing that men would desire of him. He was not handsome. He was not comely as, as Isaiah says. 
and he had nothing that men would look at him and say, wow, I want to be like that. Uh, not handsome, attractive, not formally educated, uh, so to speak, that we know of, not noteworthy in his young life. We don't know anything about his young life. It just says he grew in uh, stature. And then when his ministry began, he gained some popularity, okay? And, and then slowly the people began to turn from him because of his teachings and, and his doctrine. And after three years, he's betrayed by one of his own. So we see manger, I mean, he's just steadily going down. And then he's abandoned by all. All of them abandoned him. They ran away. And then he's beaten. And he is uh, forced to bear his own cross. And then he's taken to the outskirts of town. This is where all the rubbish and dead carcasses and thieves and criminals are taken. And on the outskirts of town, he's stuck between two thieves. And he's naked and he's stripped. And he is abandoned to the point where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the, this is the author and finisher of our faith in his life. And then he dies an insufferable death. Abandoned alone with criminals in a place for, for the garbage. That's the life of the king of Christianity. We look around today at palatial churches, at worldwide ministries that ooze success, at well-fed and well-dressed people in Christian leadership, and we allow ourselves somehow to think that this equates to God working. And yet his own son, the king of our faith, didn't come in and, and, and exist like that. How can we fool ourselves? Why do, I mean, why don't we just call it for what it is instead of trying to make it seem like that is God working? I would suggest that the New Testament narrative, the very life of Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, testify what the true Christian experience will look like for people who embrace it. And that is, it looks like a long succession of material disappointments. Many long hours of wondering, God, have you left me at this point? Um, and yet a willingness to temper our fleshly responses to these disappointments and the desire and the willingness to eventually wind up alone on a cross and on the outskirts of accepted society. That's what the biblical narrative suggests for both Christ his early uh, his apostles and then the early members of the church. It was only when Constantine got involved that palatial buildings and everything else started to take precedent and uniforms and collars and suits and ties and purple hair and gaudy television sets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was a lot of the king and those he trained. So I believe it's a lot of all those who seek him in spirit and in truth. It's willing to sacrifice. I did something I didn't think I ever would do, but I was in the vicinity. I went and visited City Creek Mall yesterday, and I sat inside of it uh, in two different places, and I observed. Uh, opulent, to say the least, beautiful, uh, beaming success. Interesting, it says on the signs that you cannot proselytize or solicit while you're in the, in the place, but it was just overflowing uh, with LDS missionaries with their name tags on, who were having discussions with people who were sitting at the various tables about where they're from and everything else doing missionary work. I watched it with my own eyes. So we're, I mean, it's ingenious really because they've got this beautiful mall for shopping for people who will, they'll go see Temple Square and they'll be like, well, that's a nice religious thing, but I'm not that. But I am interested in shopping. And that you go over to the shopping mall and little do they know the LDS got that one. And the missionaries are all in there. I mean, they've got the name tag plainly showing we are solicitors of our faith. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? But the thing about that place is, I know most, maybe not all, but most Christian pastors would love to have that kind of success too. I know they would love to own that mall. They just aren't as good a businessman as the LDS are. But if they were, I mean, we've seen it. We see churches grow and then move into palatial places and want to have it and, and draw people in. I mean, Christian pastors are not any uh, better than the Mormon leaders. The Mormon leaders are just better businessmen. But I, I'm sure if you offered any Christian pastor, uh, hey, would you like to have a billion dollar mall? 
in which you can, uh, you know, gain the profits and then also share Jesus with? And sure we would, you know, so we really can't criticize them for it, but we can criticize what's in all of our hearts. And that is from 1 John that says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, keep us humble. Help us to realize what you are about. Your feet firmly established in the things of the Spirit and the things that uh, reign eternally, not the things of the flesh, not the things of material. Don't let our pride get under our feet and think that there's any sustenance or spiritual meaning in the things that are material, Lord. Now, this world is glorious and beautiful that you've given us, but we are fallen, so help us keep our priorities straight. It's not that you don't want us to have success and comfort, Lord, but help us to remember the priority that we do not uh, live for uh, the temporal things, but we live with an eternal view. We pray for those who are helping tonight and this volunteers and people who are seeking for truth. Forgive me for the things I say wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. So we left off last week at verse 28 of Matthew 24. We're going through Matthew 24. There Jesus said, for wheresoever the carcasses, there will the eagles be gathered together. We took some time to explain how this verse could easily have application relative to the time and culture surrounding Jerusalem and the invading Roman armies in and around 70 AD. So let's continue to push through Matthew 24, which is Jesus' answer to Matthew I mean, to Peter, James, John, and Andrew's three questions. When will these things be, Jesus? What will, and what will be the sign of thy coming and the end of this age? Those are the three questions they asked Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus continues and he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now, people who are waiting for the rapture and pre-trib, they love this passage because they don't believe such things have happened yet. And so they say, see, we're still waiting for the sun to go dark. We're still waiting for the, uh, the moon not to give her light. That hasn't happened in history. And so, Sean, you're wrong. You can't say that it's already happened. Look, listen, before I explain this, let me read some passages to you. Let me read one passage to you. You tell me what it's talking about. You ready? This says, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. And the sun shall be darkened in his going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. That's a passage from the Bible. Where is it from? What's it describing? Is that an end time prophecy? No. It's Isaiah, and it's in Isaiah 13, and he's talking about the destruction of Babylon. That's the language that he used to describe the destruction of Babylon. The stars of heaven shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light to shine. That's how the Jews talked. So we can see right there an application of it being fulfilled. Babylon did fall. And Isaiah describing what it would be like. But did it literally happen the way he said? I don't think so. How about another one? Then shall the moon be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. This is a description of the destruction of Tyre described in Isaiah 24. Again, that Hebraic language. It's that language showing that's how they talk to describe a very bad time. Let me give you one more. This one's great. Ready? And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all the hosts shall fall down as a leaf falleth from off the vine, and as a falling fig from a fig tree. What's this passage describing? End times? No. It's describing the slaughter, Isaiah describing the slaughter of Basra and Idumea. It's found in Isaiah 34.4. Now, we can read that and say, well, you know, the heavens are going to be rolled together as a scroll. And hey, this already happened. All he was describing was the slaughter of Idumea and Bozrah. 
But it's easy for us in English to read it and say that, okay, you guys, the end is going to come and to preach from the pulpit and the heavens are going to be rolled as a scroll and the, the heavens will be dissolved and that hasn't happened. It's just not true. It's just the way the Jews talked. These passages certainly sound like a description of the end of the world, don't they? But they are what they are describing has already occurred. Did they change the way the world works now? I mean, when was the last time you heard of somebody talking about the slaughter of Bozrah and Idumea? We don't talk about it because the heavens were rolled up as a scroll was figurative language. It's language to say this is a change, game changer in the heavens. That's what it meant. The point is the Hebrew writers were renowned for describing God's visiting hand of judgment with flowery language like this. To take their literary license, literally, today, and say we have to wait for the sun not to shine or to be as blood and for the moon not to shine and the stars to fall and that will be the sign of the end of this world is just a mistake. That's how the Hebrews talked here on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is simply following suit in his description to his disciples of what to look for. And he uses their language, what they would understand when he says what he says in verse 28. The imagery is used uh, and shouldn't be taken any more literally than we take what Isaiah said. Uh, just as the darkening of the sun and the moon and the falling of the stars would be translated for them as a great calamity. This is gonna be a terrible thing that's coming. This is how Luke describes Jesus' words in the same passage. There would be a distress of nations Again, that word nations does not mean all the nations in the world. It means ethnos. It comes from the Greek ethnos, meaning there will be a distress among the many ethnicities in Jerusalem with perplexity, the sea and the waves rowing, roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. Again, just Hebrew language describing what the end of Jerusalem is going to look like. For thousands of years, futurists have taken these very descriptive Hebrew literary tools and have used them, well, actually for centuries, to describe actual events, events that have already occurred, and are trying to get people to believe we're waiting for these signs to still happen. Then in verse 30, we read Jesus say, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. Now that passage sounds very, very futuristic. I mean, people will say he couldn't have come in 70 AD because all the peoples of the earth are not mourning for seeing him coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. If you read the NIV Bible, you might open it up to this passage and see what it says. Because in the King James where it says, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, there's a little side note in the NIV translation that says, and all the peoples, uh, that uh, there's next to all the peoples, the footnote says, and the tribes of the land. That's how it translates it. Not all the peoples of the earth, but the tribes of the land. What tribes? The 12 tribes of Israel. They will mourn over the coming of the Son of Man in the heavens. That's the way to understand that. The word for earth here is gi. It is not cosmos. And it could mean land or country as well as earth. Again, a King James translation that futurists have taken literally and say we're still waiting for it to happen. It's happened. If you're interested in reading more about how the ancients interpreted Hebrew language, go to www.preteristarchive.com. Preteristarchive.com. It is full of information about every passage, what ancient uh, historians have said, what the early church fathers have said, what the church has long believed happened in 70 AD, and how the futurist views is, uh, are really man-made around uh, the time of 1830 by Darby and Schofield. So, Challenge it, preteristarchive.com uh, is not perfect. It has some stuff that you're gonna say, yeah, I don't go, but go and search it out. Just like if you were LDS, go to uh, utlm.org. Go check out the facts. Same thing here, check the facts. Listen, my purpose in challenging you to seek these things out is always the same. You don't have to agree with me, but I believe the truth sets people free. 
And God seeks us, Jesus said, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not just in spirit, you know, not just, uh, and not just truth, spirit and truth. And the philosophies and traditions of man must be rejected wherever they originate. Mormonism, Catholicism, Evangelicalism, Calvinism, reject it all, kick it to the curb if a man has made it up, and use the Bible to decide how you're going to think and, and believe. All right. It's at this point at verse 30 that I believe Jesus begins to answer the second question the apostles gave, which was, what is the sign of thy coming? Okay? They asked for the sign of his coming. So Jesus says in verse 30, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. It's just a sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Okay? And then shall all the ethnos of the earth, the G area, mourn, all the tribes, and they, shall see the, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Now, Hebrews tells us only those who were looking for him would see him. Okay, remember that. So where futurists would say, well, see, do we have a record of everybody seeing Jesus come in the clouds of heaven? We don't have that record. Why? Because only those who are looking for him saw him come. That's what Hebrews tells us. And so those who are looking saw, and where are they? They escaped from the destruction that fell upon them. And then he adds, in Hebrew language, of course, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now that is very, very big language. It's hard to believe, you know, that that happened in 70 AD. From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, he'll gather his elect. We know, first of all, where it says he shall send his angels. It could have been heavenly angels. But the word angels in Greek, angelos, in scripture means heavenly creations. It can be a man or a woman who is sent to warn. Scripture even calls disease and plagues angelos, meaning God sends a plague to warn the people. All of those things, all angelos means is a messenger that is sent, sort of like apostle. So biblically speaking, it refers uh, commonly to heavenly beings, but it's whatever God is using. So it, Jesus might have been speaking about heavenly angels or he may have been speaking about other messengers who are coming and saying, get ready, the time is here. Now, we also mentions the sounding of a trump. To a Jew, when a trump is heard, it meant to them, uh, Numbers 10, 12, Judges 3, 27, Leviticus 25, 9, it meant to them the assembling of the elect, the assembling of the faithful, the assembling of the chosen. So when Jesus said he'll send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, it's saying when, you, when that comes, you'll know I'm gathering my elect, okay? And for Jesus to say that these men here are coming to do that, it fits perfectly with how a Jew would expect the trump, sound of a trumpet, okay? That means he's gonna be gathering. Um, the last two lines make my interpretation difficult for people to believe because Jesus says, and they, the angels, will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so futurists say that's a worldwide gathering. Obviously, it wasn't just Jerusalem and the surrounding area, was it? So it's a worldwide gathering. It's understandable to see it that way. But it's a mistake to think that they, the Jews believed that the earth was made up of four sections, north, east, south, and west. And they believed that those four sections, they would talk about the winds that blow from that. So all it's saying is from every direction of that area, I will be gathering my elect. You'll notice here that he says, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, comma, from one end of heaven to the other. All it's talking about is those who are to be gathered, the nation of Israel, he will bring them in and gather them. Four winds and from one end of heaven to the other is synonymous. It means the same thing, okay? Then Jesus launches into a parable right here on the Mount of Olives. This is the parable. Suddenly he goes into this and he says it to his apostles. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. They've asked him, when are you gonna come? What's the sign of your coming? What will be the end of the age? Learn the parable of the fig tree. He says to them, 
when his branch, the fig tree's branch, is tender and putteth forth leaves, you know summer is nigh. So learn the parable. The fig tree, when it puts forth, you'll know summer is nigh. Then he says, so likewise ye, to his apostles, when ye shall see all these things, he's described, know that it is near even at the doors. So they've asked him three questions, and he says, when you see these things I've talked about, just like when you look at a fig tree and its branch, you'll know summer's coming. No, when these things come forward, that is the branch of the fig tree, and the end is near. It's coming forward. All right. And when they saw the signs, they would know viewing, like viewing a fig tree, that judgment of Judah was near. He's been talking about that. Desolation of Judah was near, even at the door. The destruction of the grand temple, which he said not one stone was going to lay on top of each other, was at hand. The end of the covenant age, world, not cosmos, was near. And the return of Jesus, his second coming, when will you come again? What will be the sign of thy coming was near. And the end of the age, the end of that world was near. All of those things he has been telling them. When you see these signs, get ready. And this brings us to the verse which there is no getting around. This is the coup de grace of Matthew 24. It's the one that slams the door on the whole problem. You ready? It's a deal breaker because Jesus says, Verily, I say unto you, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, sitting there on the Mount of Olives, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Okay? And then he adds another Hebraism and says, heaven and earth shall pass away. We know that doesn't mean literally. It's a figure of speech, but my words shall not pass away. He just affirms to them how long it's going to take. And three weeks ago, we defined what a generation was in the Bible. 40, 38, 40, 42, around that years. No more. It was 33 AD about. 70 AD is when the destruction happened. His prophecy was absolutely dead on true. Now, because these words do not fit with a futurist view, with people who are waiting for the rapture and for the end of the world now, they have taken this passage and they have said all kinds of things about it. They have said here that we have not understood what Jesus meant. They have said Jesus didn't understand what he was talking about. They have said Jesus was wrong. They have said that Jesus as a man didn't know. They have said the apostles did not understand. They were waiting for the return. It never came. They're wrong. I trust the Bible. I give a rat's rear end what these guys say. When Jesus says in verse 34, this generation will not pass till all these things come about, he was right. He's not wrong. The Bible's not wrong. The apostles weren't wrong. They knew it as they warned the thing. Relative to Jesus saying, verily I say unto you, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, this generation shall not pass till all, everything in Matthew 24, these things shall be fulfilled. And man, we have heard really good Christians suggest some terrible things about verse 34. Do you, ask yourself right now, yourself, do you take the words and retranslate generation to suit your needs? Do you say generation doesn't mean generation? Do you say we just don't understand that? That's not fair. Generation meant freaking generation. We proved it three weeks ago. In every case of the New Testament, generation was a 40-year span of time. It didn't mean a people. It didn't mean longer than that. It meant that span of time. Do you suppose Jesus was off? Do you think Jesus was mistaken? Do you think he didn't know? Or have you grown up and grown a pair and admitted that this is what the passage says, that Jesus was not wrong or mistaken, and everything he suggested occurred exactly as he said it would? If you suggest that this passage that is not correct and that Jesus was wrong, you and I can stop talking because you're wrong. He's not wrong. His word's not wrong. The word can be trusted. 
Jesus and his disciples were right on. They meant what they said, and what they said what is what it means, and everything he described has occurred. Listen, a futurist, a pre-trib, a post-trib, a, a Salt Lake tribber cannot agree to this, to this passage. They have to say there's something wrong with it. And they have to either say Jesus was wrong, or generation does not mean generation, but in either case, they have twisted the clear meaning to suit their twisted views. C.S. Lewis, a great Christian apologist, he's inspired me through his books, love him to death. He made an, some unfortunate comments about this passage, very unfortunate. Lewis, who usually uh, gives really good apologetic answers for, for uh, questioning critics of the Bible, he conceded that Jesus was in error. This is what C.S. Lewis said about Matthew 20, uh, 34, uh, I mean, 24, 34. He attributed Jesus' limited knowledge as a man to the fact that he didn't really know when he was coming back. This is what, uh, this is what he wrote in a book, The End of the World. Ready? Quote, say what you like. We shall be told, meaning by critics, and here C.S. Lewis gives his critics a voice in his writings, saying that they would say, we shall be told the apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proved to be false. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. Did you read that? C.S. Lewis says, it's clear in the New Testament they all expected Jesus to return, apostles and Jesus himself. And worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass to all these things be done, and he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else, end quote of what the critics would say to us. At this point, Lewis stops giving voice to the critics, and he says of Matthew 34, 24, I quote, it is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Yet how teasing also that within 14 words of it should come the statement, but of that day and of that hour, no man knoweth, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. The one exhibition of error and the one confession of ignorance grow side by side. He continues, to this, the skeptic may reply, if Jesus incorrectly predicted his return within the contemporaneous generation, but actually did, did not know that he was going to return within that time frame, then why did he so confidently assert that all the words he had spoken would come to pass in Matthew 24, 35? When he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Do you know what that says? C.S. Lewis, because he couldn't understand what that verse was saying, that genius of a man, and, and, and I have, hold nothing against him, he couldn't understand it, and so he said, we're gonna be mocked for it, and for good reason. It's the most embarrassing passage in the Bible. Holy, holy shiitake mushrooms. It's unbelievable that we can't see this in its historical context, and that Jesus, what he said, is exactly true. It's not embarrassing in the least. Bringing more reason to the topic. In 1993, at a Covenant Eschatology Symposium at Mount Dora, Florida, another Christian scholar, R.C. Sproul, who's still alive and stands over Ligonier Ministries, said this about the This Generation passage spoken by Jesus and the church interpretation of it. This is what R.C. Sproul said, you ready? Maybe some church fathers made a mistake. Maybe our favorite theologians have made mistakes. I can abide with that. I can't abide with Jesus being a false prophet because if I am to understand that Jesus is a false prophet, my faith is in vain, end quote. This passage cannot be explained away. You either say Jesus was right and everything that happened happened within that generation in Matthew 24, 23, 22, and 21, and the end of the world garbage that we are spouting to look for today has been fulfilled or Jesus was wrong. That's it. And it is the most embarrassing passage in scripture. And, 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 and C.S. Lewis was right. And our critics have one on us. You can't look at it any other way, folks. And when you twist it to make it fit your little pet theologies, you're lying. You're lying to your congregations and you're lying to yourself. It's clear what it means. 
Listen, regarding Jesus' response to his apostle, we are only left with one of three choices. He was speaking to them for their day and possibly, I don't believe this, but possibly what he said could exist again in the future for us. Doesn't ever say that, but let's say it does. Secondly, he was speaking to them only and he was wrong. Or he was speaking to them only and he was right. Those are our options when we read verse 24. We have already covered the meaning of generations in this program. I'm not gonna explain it again. Bottom line, if Jesus' words were not completely fulfilled within that generation, C.S. Lewis' description of, of our critics' attacks on us is dead on. It's the most embarrassing passage in the Bible. And he, he really couldn't trust anything else he said if he was wrong on that one. And I just don't believe he's wrong at all. To me, that's an impossibility. And it's time for pastors and churches to step up to the plate and admit that Jesus' descriptions of the second coming were absolutely correct, that his apostles' description of the end times, which we're gonna prove in the weeks to come, are even more to the point of saying it's happening anytime. They were correct, and let's put away the idea that we're still waiting for him to show up. He came, and all he said to the Pharisees in Matthew, and all he said to his apostles have been fulfilled, like it or not. Will they be repeated? I can't say. There's people who wanna hang on to that. They're gonna be repeated. I couldn't tell you, I don't believe so, but maybe you're right. Next week, we'll try to finish up what Jesus says in the rest of Matthew 24, and then we're gonna move on to what John, James, Peter, uh, Paul, and Hebrew says about his second coming, which is mind-blowing. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Now, last week, we had a caller ask, so Sean, where's the hope? If he has come, what do Christians have to look forward to? I understand the question to some extent, but I have to admit the full emotional impact of it, it escapes me because I've never really bought into the idea of all the rhetoric behind, we're waiting, get ready, you know, be ready to be raptured. If you're not, you're gonna be left behind. I've never bought into any of that. So whether he came or we're waiting for him to come or didn't, it's irrelevant to me. To me, I have to be ready to go whether he comes or whether I die. That's the whole point, you see. I'm just being honest, but I've, I've always maintained that it's better to be ready for going to him whatever way it comes. So I haven't been brainwashed by the rapture-ready rhetoric, even though I was trained at Calvary Chapel, and that was Chuck Smith's big deal, and that's Calvary Chapel's big deal. Eschatology, end times, waiting for him to come. And I, you know, I'm just not there. But those who have expectantly looked for him waiting for him to appear and to be raptured and to destroy the world, what can we say? Let me give you some suggestions for whatever they're worth. First of all, ask yourself, what does the second coming of Jesus, the rapture, mean to any believer who has died from right now, at this hour, going backward to 70 AD? Billions of believers. What has the rapture of the second coming meant to them? hasn't meant anything. When you really think about it, Jesus' second coming that the futurists are waiting for has a very, very narrow application to the body of believers as a whole. Only one generation is going to experience that, and yet so many have thrown their whole heart and mind into waiting for this event to occur. Secondly, when I used to hear Chuck Smith preach, and it's my only difference with him, I love him too, and I wish I had his faith and his ability to teach the word, but when I used to hear Chuck say in the 1970 recordings of scripture, I just wish Jesus would come. I just wish he'd come right now and take us, take us away. It used to break my heart because in the 1970s, I wasn't a believer, I was a Mormon. And, in the 19, and then when I was listening to them in the 90s uh, or in the 2000s, my daughters weren't believers. They were still LDS and my wife was still LDS. And I hear Chuck saying, Jesus, come. Well, what would that mean? It would mean that my, my family is gonna be thrown in hell forever and ever and ever because they're not ready. And yet I hear Christians pleading for him to come back, destroy the earth, take them up, save them, but not even save their own kids. I've never understood it. I don't understand that thinking. I mean, I just don't understand when people say, I wish Jesus would come back and just wipe this place out. When you think about it, the desire for Jesus to return in that way is rather selfish, isn't it? Isn't it kind of self-centered and contrary to the hope that he would delay his coming so more could be saved rather than 
and, and expedite his coming so more could be thrown to hell forever and ever and ever? I have never understood that thinking as long as I've been a Christian. I can't understand it. They will say, well, I just love Jesus more than anybody else. Well, you know, there's two commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. There's not just the one. And when we take the two together, we care about the eternal uh, lives of everybody around us. And so to wish for him to come back, it's always been foreign to me. Finally, I suggest that this perspective requires just a little tweak in application. And let me explain. And then we're going to go to the phones. Or there's a question here. I sincerely believe that the Bible clearly teaches that God established a physical covenant with the house of Israel. He promised a physical Messiah who was born of a physical woman. He lived a physical life. He died a physical death. He was raised physically, resurrected, and he returned physically to that nation and poured out the judgment upon them who had been given the promises of Messiah for all that time. When he came and his church was taken, whether by a physical saving or whether by spiritual rapture, whatever happened, from that point forward, the church is made now of spiritual believers. The physical is done away with. And so everything we read in scripture is spiritually applied. Is there a rapture for believers today? Absolutely. Is there a judgment for believers today? Absolutely. Is there a, a some going to heaven and some going to hell of people? Absolutely. Is there a resurrection for believers today? Absolutely. When does it happen? At our death. We all have our individual, respective, spiritual rapture, judgment, resurrection, second coming at death. That's how it now plays out. For them, it was a physical manifestation, fulfilling all that had been prophesied for that nation. For us, the Gentiles, it's a spiritual event. And everybody who has died has had their second coming. They got, just like the Jews in Israel in 70 AD, they were either destroyed or they went to heaven. So we, when we die, we will either go to hell or we will go to heaven. It's all the same picture, and I hope that gives some kind of hope. All we have to do is shift and say, instead of I'm waiting for the big return for all of us, realize you're going to have your big return. It's going to be the day you take your last breath, and it may be tonight. And that's why we prepare constantly for meeting with Jesus, not for the big event and for all the signs that the Jews were looking for to be physically fulfilled. All right? So I hope that makes some sense. Learn the word of God. We'll come back to a question. We set it to music. Watch this. Got an off-air question. Sean, what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer? How many different locations are highlighted and what are they? How many different locations are highlighted? Are, uh, are, are people who uh, type these things out, sometimes they have some issues with some illegal drugs? Wh oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, they're found in the Gospels. I don't think the Lord's Prayer is found in John. I think it's in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there is some division on really what is part of that because they will say that in some of the earlier manuscripts, quote unquote, Jesus ends with, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And it ends there. And so the Lord's Prayer is an interesting study. I don't know what you mean by locations, but uh, 
Sorry for that. Let's go to Vaughn in Birmingham, Alabama. Not a first-time caller. And then we'll go to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, who is something. Vaughn, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, good evening, brother. Sean McCraney. How you doing? Good evening, Vaughn, Birmingham, Alabama. Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, sir, I would like to be able to address the topic as it is this evening, but I... I've got a few thoughts, but I want to marshal them a little bit better, maybe call in on some future show, okay. and I'm a little bit better prepared. But uh, in looking through your archives, uh, stumbled uh -huh. onto the fact that you consider yourself to be a Christian artist. Do you stand by that? I do. Mm-hmm. That got my juices flowing when I, when I saw that, that particular episode. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? Uh, the, the main title... For Yeshua is no. Well, it's the master artist, of course, and here's why. There is no form of expression, no form of artistic expression, literary art, uh, language art, you name whatever uh, form of art expression there is, and none of it would allow. Uh, any religion to exist if if art didn't exist if you get what i'm saying if there were no literary art the bible wouldn't exist the quran wouldn't exist the if there weren't language art people could not convey their religious beliefs by speaking them so yeah. therefore because no religion could exist of any kind on the face of the earth without some sort of form of uh, artistic expression then you know, although he's got many titles, and of course his, his name is Yeshua, his most holy title is the Master Artist. In fact, you can't even utter the words the Master Artist were not for the fact that there's language art. That's a beautiful concept, uh, Vaughn. Listen, and you know, obviously, he's the great creator, and uh, you know, speaking of creating vistas, and, and uh, he's a scientist, he's everything. He's, I mean, all things, biologists, uh, everything under the sun. I, I'm just, uh, I just have a, I just relate. I have an affinity for people who are skilled in the different arts because they typically and traditionally are, have a difficult time of life. They typically aren't understood by others. And I think there's a place for them in the body that has been kind of overlooked. Oh, yes, yes. And, and Brother Sean, one final thing that I want to encourage you to consider and then I'll let, uh, let, let you go, because I don't want to monopolize the time. And that is this. If you will start to consider in your personal prayers, and I know this is some kind of, of, of consideration, but I say it because I've, 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 I've begun to do it in my own prayers, and that is to address, it, uh, address God as the master artist. And over a period of time, you will be absolutely astounded at how much more clear the Spirit speaks to you. I'll, and I'll, I, I, I really can't say anything more than that. It's just some, one of those things you have to really begin to build a relationship directly based upon addressing him as the master artist. And, and you just have to see for yourself. But I'm telling you, it's appreciate it, more clarity in, in, in your communications is, is what I'm saying. And anyway, that's I, it. I love you. Appreciate you. Have, have a good night. Thanks for the insight, Vaughn. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, John. Hey, John. I'm on the air. Okay. Listen, uh, this is your old buddy, John. I've called in several times and uh, to talk to you, but this, this show here right now is, is, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I have read the, uh, the scriptures deeply many times over and studied this futuristic thing, uh, uh, kind of an ex-Mormon. I uh, still go once in a while, but I, I you know, anyway, uh, I've got a little difference on the on the final outcome. I came to a conclusion what you were talking about several years ago by studying what happened with uh, Rome and the fall of uh, the Jews and the temple destruction and everything. I agree 100% everything you're saying, but I also know there are scriptures in the in the Old Testament that describe prophetic things about Israel as a nation being restored uh, in 1947 to 48 when all that took place. 
uh, it talks about in Isaiah and Ezekiel about these trains, these things with wheels that flint that bring them on their backs, and the Gentiles will carry them home to their promised lands. And and I see this being fulfilled today with the return of Israel. And and, and Zechariah talks about Jesus' was foot would touch the top of the Mount of Olives, and it would open up at the great battle of Armageddon, and the whole nation would pour through that that valley that would open up into safety, and Jesus would show his hands and feet to these people, the, the Israelites, his chosen people from the past, and, and say, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. And the whole yeah. nation of Israel would go in the morning for three days yeah. and realize what they've done to the Messiah. Yeah. Uh, these are very spiritual prophecies that I see in the Bible, and the apostle. Paul says that you Gentiles are going to bring these elect of God. Remember, they're still the elect by jealousy. God is going to turn them back to the Messiah. And and he will not come unto them until they say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. John, you sound... I'm getting emotional about this because I still believe Christ is coming for the nation of Israel. I know you do. I know you do. And, and And admittedly, I could be wrong. So, so please understand, I respect your view and consider you more astute and studied on it than I am. All I'm saying, and this is... The, I agree with you. This is the only question I am, a, I am answering. Did, does the Bible say when Jesus would return? The second time. It, it, it does, and, and, and he did return for him. I do believe that. Yes, yeah. I do believe that. And they, they did escape. Uh, to Pella and, and, and the areas out there, and there is archaeological evidence that the church went there, and maybe some of the remnant continued on. Even maybe. to this day, some of the anti-Baptists, there's some of them seem to think they may go back to that. Could have been. One more thing, John. Please check out Preterist Archive and look at your specific Old Testament passages relative to the Jews and hear how others, early church fathers, have explained those. Because I'm okay. not... Yeah, try that out, and we'll talk next week. we got a lot of calls. Okay. All right, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Let's go to uh, Mark in, uh, uh, wait, we got, who's first? Let's go to Tom. Sorry, Tom. Tom in Park City, Utah. Tom, you're on the air. Dang. Tom, Tom, you're on the air. Okay, thank you. you got to turn your, uh, your, computer down yeah my question is uh i was a dispensationalist for a lot of years i was uh uh, when i became a believer i was given a schofield bible and i i followed the teachings of the seven uh dispensations of god the the um the tribulation period and and the rapture and and it it was a long time before i was really exposed to the the source of those teachings which was a, a brethren by the name of jan darby and uh I guess when I realized how relatively new those teachings were, it helped me see that that either I was right and the church was wrong for 18 or 1900 years, or possibly uh, I could be wrong and those those teachings were were not in line with what the church has taught. But I'm wondering. Uh, I'm really intrigued by the um, by the the way you've given up and kind of the the current dispensational rapture teaching. Are there some are there some Theology books, are, are there some writers that uh, you could cite that, that, that could kind of bolster your argument? Yeah, the best thing I can give you is go to preteristarchive.com, and it cites uh, all the uh, early church fathers, their views, and then scholars today who stand by partial preterism or full preterism. I'm not sure what I am in either case, okay. uh, and that might help, Tom. Sure, okay. All right, my brother, Appreciate thanks for watching. Thank you. Okay, bye. We're going to Robert in San Antonio, Texas. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. Good evening. Good evening. I uh, found your uh, show on YouTube not long ago. I've been uh, uh, looking for ways to be a, an effective witness to Mormons, and I came across your, sh- your show, your program. I'm really glad I did. Awesome. I, I uh, just, over the last number of years, I feel that God has been bringing Mormons to my door and, and uh, giving me a heart to, to be a witness to Mormons. And I'm currently currently meeting with two uh, young Mormon missionaries. I wanted to call you to ask what advice you could give me uh, to be an effective witness, especially in the area of of, uh, of, uh, proclaiming the the true gospel to them. 
I, I like the way you said that, Robert, especially in proclaiming the true gospel to them. Uh, they're kind of loaded for bear when it comes to anti-Mormon uh, uh, stuff thrown at them, and it almost is like throwing water on a duck. It just rolls off. So uh, uh, you might consider what we call the, uh, the John 3-3 method, and that is to just say, you know, elders, I have a challenge for you. Have you been born again? Now, the LDS believe that you are born again every week when you go to church and you repent of your sins, you renew your covenants taken at baptism by taking the sacrament, and you go through that process weekly to the point of spiritual sanctification. But, okay. you, but you might just point out, you know, the Lord used rebirth purposefully because when a woman goes and throws her legs in the stirrups, that means the baby's coming. It's not a weekly thing that she goes back to give birth to the baby every week. It's rebirth. It's a singular event. Yeah, sanctification does take a lifelong. So, elders, the question I have for you is, have you been born again? Not are you trying to be, not are you in the process of being, have you been? And you don't have to answer me, but if the answer is no, then I have a challenge for you. Go to God. You go directly to Heavenly Father, who you believe in, in Jesus' name that you use and say, open my eyes. Give me this new birth that Robert in San Antonio, Texas is talking to me about. I'm gonna leave it in your hands to show me the light. I'm not gonna believe Robert. I'm not gonna believe anybody else. Tell them that. Take this challenge and, and, and go from there. So I would put them and then, and then talk to them about rebirth and talk to them about how that is a mandatory imperative that Jesus used in the Greek. They must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. That's my best advice, Robert. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, had not, I had not heard that uh, 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 advice as far as going to John 3, 3 and being born again. I, I definitely agree with what you said. You, know, you must be born again. I, I wasn't sure because I, obviously I'm learning. I didn't know if they considered themselves to be born again or not. I, know, I do know I've, as I've been learning how their gospel is, 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 is full of a number of uh, procedures of of repentance and baptism and uh, uh, enduring to the end and keeping the commandments and, and things like that, it, it, it adds to the, the, the grace and sufficiency of Christ. Yeah, I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of how they would respond to be born again. So I'll definitely use that in now, my conversations. One quick war warning, Robert. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, because it is tr pretty much an evangelical Christian book that echoes the sentiments of 19th century Christianity. Uh, they do have a phrase that's called the mighty change. And it's where right. Alma speaks of the mighty change. So if a missionary's smart, he'll go, of course we believe in being born again. In fact, Alma speaks of the mighty change. So just use their, 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 the, what they're saying and say, okay, have you experienced the mighty change? Whatever it right. is, born again, stick with that one. Oh, listen, listen, stay on the line. We want to send you a book. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Okay, God bless you, my brother. You too. Okay, bye. Hold. Bye. Where is hold? Hold. Top right. Thank you, Seth. All right, and last call, Mark. We're going to wrap this up on line four. In Mark in Idaho, what's up? Mark? You're on the air. Hurry. Have the time. Mark? Oh, I didn't push the button. Mark? <laughs> Mark? Meridian, Idaho? Mark? I'm pushing for. Mark? Yeah? Hey, you're on the air, buddy. Hey, I got a quick question for you that take one minute and you'll be going home. All right, buddy. Uh, I'm just starting to read the Bible, and I want to read the most easily explained word Bible there is. Is it the King James Version, NIV, New World Translation? Ooh. Uh, That's Jehovah's Witness. Read what the Mormons read? What do I read? Uh, listen, uh, go to a Christian bookstore, not a seagull book, and, and just walk in and say, what's the easiest to read Bible? I know there's some easy ones that people will turn over in their grave to recommend to you, but it doesn't matter. I, I know that the Word of God will speak to you, and you'll grow in your ability to read and understand it. So I learned, literally, Christianity by reading a teener, 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 a teenager's Bible called the Pilgrim Edition. 
And oh, it's a, really? Yeah, but it's a King James Version, and I was used to reading that, so I don't recommend that one to someone who's not used to reading the Old English. But go to a Christian bookstore, Mark, there in Meridian, and say, I want a Bible that's really easy to read, and whatever they tell you, get it, read it, and you will grow in the Lord and learn to read the other ones. All right, what's, what's the other one? What's the big Bible you got? That, you know, that's a King James Version, and it's a Thompson chain, and I love all the right. Thompson chain because it doesn't have any references to any material. It's just all Bible. But, all right, some, somebody at work asked me about it, so I said, I'll call and ask him. That's it, all right. Thompson chain. All righty. Love you, brother. Thanks for watching. Right. You bet. Thanks for watching, you guys. We're going to come back next week. We're going to wrap up what Jesus said in the Gospels, hopefully, about the three questions his apostle asked, and then we're going to get into what his uh, uh, disciples actually said about his coming. And again, the, and we're going a little bit over time, but the question is, when does the Bible say Jesus would return? I am not saying he isn't going to come again. I don't know that. Who could know that? But I am saying the Bible clearly teaches that he returned within a generation at 70 AD for the house of Israel put judgment upon those who disbelieved and gave rewards to those who believed. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't become This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred